From Parkway Church in Kurana, this is the Parkway Podcast. Our prayer is that this message blesses and encourages you today as you listen. If you would like to know more information on who we are as a church, you can visit our website, weareparkway.com. Well, we're in a series today called Back to School. You didn't realize you're coming to school today, but you are. We're in a series called Back to School. The idea is that we're going back to some of the basics of what we believe as a local church and what we believe as Christians. And, and why is this important? It's important because having, it gives us a foundation. It gives us a footing to stand on. It's important because knowing um, what we believe about God and the Bible and, and Jesus and, and humanity and the Holy Spirit and the church actually how, it impacts how we relate to God. It impacts how we relate to God. It impacts how we relate to one another. It really impacts how we live. And so it's important to know what we believe. It's important to know what the Bible says about these things and, and, and not just have a fabrication in our own mind. It's important because we love God, and it's our mission to know God. And part of knowing God is, is knowing what the Bible teaches about God and knowing what biblical truth is about God. So last week, if you were here, you joined us. We looked at the subject of the Trinity, and if you missed that, you can check it on the podcast. This morning, we're going to tackle the subject of the Bible. What is the Bible, and what do we believe about it? And I'm actually going to work a little bit backwards. I'm going to begin with, with what the Bible is and, and what the Bible says of itself, and then I'm going to, I'm going to ask the question and hopefully answer in a, in a way this morning, can we trust it? Is it reliable? Is this thing, this, this thing that we read and we look through and we form our foundation of our faith uh, for a reliable source of, of information? So we're back to school. So sit up straight, maybe bust out the ruler and the pens and the, the pencils, nudge your neighbor, you know, tell them to, to pay attention. Do whatever you got to do to focus this morning. There may be a lot of information, and I'm going to attempt to talk slower at those times. I'm going to try. I'm going to try my best. I tend to get really excited and talk really fast all the time, and it just happens. It just comes out of my mouth, and I don't know what to do. I'm like an auctioneer. But I'm going to attempt to slow down and just let it just digest a little bit, hopefully. Amen? Let's pray one more time. We'll get into it. Father God, we just thank you for your word. We thank you that we have the opportunity to freely study it in our country, in our, in our church, and we just pray that as we look at it this morning, that you would speak to us, and maybe you would reinforce some information for us, maybe you would refresh, maybe you'd teach us something new, God, this morning, but let us leave here changed and compelled, Father God, um, more to be in your word and to look at your word. In the name of Jesus, Father God, I know that this is how you've revealed yourself to us, and so I pray you reveal yourself this morning to us in a new way, in a fresh way, in the name of Jesus, amen. So a rhetorical question for you, I don't want you to answer this, but I just want you to think about it. Does God still reveal himself? Does God still reveal himself? Every night before we put our kids to bed, we have a little bit of a routine that we've been doing basically since they could function. We do it with Emmy, our, 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 she's not a newborn anymore, she's 11 months now, um, but we do it with her. But we, we get them ready for bed, you know, that might include a bath and a little snack depending on the day and the night, and, and then almost always it includes a book that we read, which is usually the Bible, not always, but most of the time is, is something from the Bible, and then a prayer. And I remember, uh, I think it was last year sometime, as I was putting the boys to bed and I, I prayed with them and tried to encourage them to pray, one of them asked, does God ever speak to us? Like, how come God never talks to us? And it's a simple question, but it's a deep question. And then I found myself 
racking my brain to how am I going to explain this to four-year-old? How am I going to explain this in a way that a child will understand? God still speaks, and God still reveals himself. That's not how I said it to them. I didn't just champion a, a, a moment. I could have, but I didn't. I'll get to that. God still speaks, and God still does reveal himself, and there's two primary ways that God reveals himself. The first is general revelation, and the second is special revelation. General revelation is basically revelation that God has revealed himself to everyone everywhere. It's for everybody. Everybody gets this. And it's best understood by the three C's, creation, common grace, and conscience. So you can write these down if you're taking notes. Creation, common grace, and conscience. Everywhere you look in the world, the beauty, the complexity, the universe, the body, you see the handiwork of God. I was walking my dog this morning really early on, and we had, I guess we had rain or thunderstorm or something last night, but as the sun was rising, the sky was just red. And I just looked up and I thought, man, that is gorgeous. I'm still exhausted, still trying to wake up. My dog's tugging at me, you know, but I just couldn't, I, I, I couldn't fathom the idea of not, that coming from nothing. When you look up and when you look at the complexity of the universe, you, you see the handiwork of God. When you get down to the body and you look at the, the atoms and the molecules and, and how we are so complex, you see the handiwork of God. I was talking with someone a, a number of weeks back who is a non-religious person, not a Christian by any means, and they said, obviously God exists, look, look around. Obviously God exists, look around. Psalms 19 verse 1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the works of of his hands. Romans chapter 1 verse 19 to 20 says, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Everyone everywhere can see the wisdom and power and divine nature of God through created life. General revelation. Then there's, there's common grace. This is a term first used, uh, believed to be used by Augustine, an early church father. And it's grace that is for everyone regardless of belief, regardless of sin level, regardless of understanding. Because God is loving and good and is determined to do good in love and therefore this is common. Sun, rain, laughter, access to raw material. Some, some would say that common grace allows those who despise God learn and make gains in science and philosophy and technology and education and medicine. So when you look at the world and you're like, why are incredibly evil and sinful people societies to flourish and families to exist and cities to rise and nations to prosper regardless of their belief? Matthew chapter 5 Verse 45, this, the latter half says, he causes the sun, talking about the physical sun, he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. It was, it was Eli's birthday the other day. And uh, he asked, Jody had asked him, you know, what do you want for breakfast? I'll make you anything you want for breakfast, your favorite breakfast. And so he chose banana pancakes with pancakes made with bananas and chocolate chips in them and fruit f smothered in fruit. And he had a couple English muffins. And he's, he's like, I want a smoothie. And so she made him this smoothie with like a nice little topped strawberry, like on the, on the glass. It wasn't a glass. It was a mason jar because that looks even more incredible, right? And so he's just, he's, he's in his glory first thing in the morning. And then Joshua strolls out of bed a little bit later because Joshua is the one that's, that sleeps in a little bit. And he comes out and he gets up on the stool and then Jody hands him the exact same thing. But it's my birthday. 
And I just thought to myself as I was thinking about this, I'm like, common grace, buddy. Common grace, everybody. Everybody. And I said to, we said to him, well, on, on Joshua's birthday, which is coming up in October, you're probably going to get whatever he gets. And he kind of just thought for a second, oh, yeah. And he continued to, <laughs> continued to eat. <coughs> That's uh, common grace. And then finally, God has revealed himself in our conscience. Our conscience is our internal moral compass, right? Our conscience tells us it's wrong to murder your neighbor when they do something that you don't like. It's wrong to steal their possessions because you want them and they have a really nice boat, right? It's, it's wrong to do. That's our conscience. And everyone has a conscience. Now, you can ignore your conscience and you can sear it and you can break it, but everyone has this internal moral compass built within them. So ultimately, general revelation means that all people know God in a general way. God has revealed himself in a general way to everybody, right? You, you're tracking with me so far? But that is not sufficient. General revelation is not sufficient to come to know God in a personal way or in a saving way. And that is where we need special revelation because general revelation does not reveal Jesus Christ. It does not reveal his work on the cross. It does not reveal uh, sin and salvation. It just we need special revelation. Special revelation is the belief that knowledge of God in spiritual matters can be discovered su through supernatural means. Visions and, and dreams and miracles and ultimately the scriptures. When, when you hear about you know, a Muslim in, in the Middle East having a dream of Jesus and, and turning to Jesus because of, because of this dream, that's special revelation. It's not, it's not when you look up to the sky and you think, there must be a Jesus who died on the cross for my sins and wants to know me in a personal way. It's, it's, a, it's something that's, that's more so than, than general. And Jesus is the pinnacle of special revelation. Jesus is the pinnacle because he is the image of the invisible God. God has revealed himself most clearly in the person of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 and 2 says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times in various ways. And that is also special revelation, right? He gave something to somebody specifically for people. It's not the sky. It's not conscience. It's not common grace. Verse 2 says, But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. So Jesus is supremely God's revelation. We want to know anything we not got to know about who God is. We got to look at Jesus because the Bible says, this book says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. We don't understand something about God. We got to look to Jesus. We're reading the Old Testament. Things confuse us in the Old Testament. We got to look to Jesus because Jesus is supremely God's special revelation. But the only way to truly know Jesus is through the word. The only way to truly know Jesus is through the word. We may witness a miracle. We may have a, a dream, we may, we may, you know, have a vision, but truly we come to know who Jesus is, his person, his work, through the word, the Bible, the scriptures. It is the Bible that reveals God. It is the Bible that reveals Jesus. So God does continue to reveal himself, but ultimately, the primary and clearest way that God reveals himself is through the Holy Spirit-inspired, inerrant, and authoritative Bible tracking with me so far. The Bible is God revealing himself to us in human words. So simply put, if we're going back to school and we need to just be very clear, what do we believe about the Bible? The Bible is God's word to all men. It was written by human authors under the supernatural guidance of the Holy Spirit. And because of that, it is without error and the ultimate source of authority for the Christian life. So I'm sitting there with my boys. You know, a year ago or so, and we were, they're about to go to bed, and 
Maybe they're trying to procrastinate a little bit. Maybe they're actually thinking, but they say, does God still speak? Does God speak to us? How come we never hear God speak? So I said, well, you know, there's, there's a number of ways that we hear God speak and we see God. We can look to creation. We can look to beautiful things around the world. We can look at, you know, we can sometimes hear him on the inside when we know something was right, we know something was wrong. Or we can look to the word because often, or not often, is when we, when we want to know something about God, we find in his word because that's what he's, all that he has to say and all he wants to teach us is in the Bible. And I said to him, that's why we read it every night. Sometimes when I go to open up the Bible, this happened last night actually, because they have a stack of books in their bedroom and I always go and I grab the, the kid's Bible. Eli's like, oh. <laughs> because kid's Bibles, just so you know, are like condensed versions of the main stories and he knows the main stories inside and out. Actually, two nights ago, was it two, two or three nights ago, he wanted to read this other book called Dog Man. And I said, okay, we will read Dog Man on, on, on you know, with, if you can answer me these questions three. And I just randomly pulled stories from the Bible that would be in a kid's Bible and just said, who is this that happened this to? You know, who, who was thrown in the lion's den? Daniel. And then he began to answer, and he, he stumped me. I'm like, shoot, now I guess we got to read Dog Man. We've got to read a book about a dog who's a man. The Bible is how God speaks and reveals himself to us. So what is the Bible? What is the Bible? Is it some old book filled with wise sayings from some ancient gurus and sages, as some believe? Is it simply human writings that become divine as you discover the supernatural meaning behind them? Is it an ancient text that's been twisted and manipulated and changed over time to rule people? Is it just a book full of fairy tales and fiction and nice little stories to make some people feel good about themselves? Someone once said the Bible is like a telescope. If a man looks through a telescope, he can see worlds beyond. But if he looks at his telescope, all he sees is a telescope. The Bible is a book to be looked through, this person said, to see that which is beyond. But most people only look at it so they can only see the dead letter. Immanuel Kant, an influential German philosopher, once said, A single line from the Bible has consoled me more than any other book I've ever read. The Bible is more than just a book. The Bible is more than just a book. It's a holy book. The word Bible actually is a Greek word for book. So when we say holy Bible, we're actually saying holy book. We're saying that this book is set apart. Holy means to be other than, to be set apart. This book is unlike Dogman. This book is unlike the Quran. This book is unlike your textbook. This book is unlike Roman history because this book is a set-apart book. This book is a holy book. I remember I was a, a youth leader running a youth group way back in the day for me. You're like, that's not way back in the day. Way back in the day for me. And we were talking about what the Bible says about holy living and living a holy life. And this, this relatively new guy comes in, and non-Christian background, non-Christian person. And he's engaging in the conversation, and, and he says, this is good and all, but how can we trust something that was written so long ago by one guy? We don't even know if he's a crazy person. I said, actually, we do. And the book is not written by one guy. It's actually a collection of books. And so then we end up having a, a conversation about this, and it was like his eyes were open for the first time. It's like someone opened a treasure chest full of gold, and his, the glow was on his face. And so this morning, I, I hope, hopefully, I want to open up a treasure chest a little bit. I want to open up some eyes a little bit. See, the Bible is not so much a book as it is a collection of books, a library of books, if you will. This is where I'm going to slow down a little bit. 
It actually contains 66 different books in what is known as the canon of Scripture, books that have been recognized throughout church history as inspired and having authority. 39 of the books make up the Old Testament, which records from the creation of, of the world all the way to about 450 B.C. The Old Testament books of the Bible, the scriptures, are the Hebrew Bible. It's what the Jews look to as their holy scripture. It's known as the Jewish Tanakh, I think, if I pronounce that correctly. Um, the 27 books make up the New Testament, which records the life of Jesus and basically his impact on ministry and, and letters written to churches um, um, and instructions to churches and Christians known as the epistles. Some other mainline Christian faiths, such as Catholicism, may have other books in the Holy Bible that they have called the Apocrypha, but these are not considered to be a part of the canon of Scripture. They don't carry the same weight and authority. Now, if I remember correctly, and I, and I quickly brush up on my history, basically the, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible that the Jews believed was translated into Greek. That is known as the Septuagint, the Septuagint. And the, the, somewhere along the ways in the Septuagint, these other books got added into it. And so other Christian mainline faiths, such as Catholics and Catholicism, include, use the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, to bring about their English Bible, which is why you have those extra books. You're like, why are there extra books in here? It's because they didn't go to the Hebrew. They went to the Greek translation of the Hebrew. You track? A little bit? A little bit? A little bit? Okay. The books of the Bible were written in three languages, Hebrew, Greek, and a bit of Aramaic, over the span of 1,500 years by more than 40 different authors on three different continents. Let me repeat that. The books of the Bible, and I'm, I'm saying that on purpose, the books of the Bible were written in three different languages. Hebrew is primarily the Old Testament. Greek and a bit of Aramaic over a span of 1,500 years by more than 40 authors on three different continents. Now, this is what separates this holy book from many other holy books. Because this book, unlike many other holy books, was written by multiple authors over a span of 1,500 years, three different continents and three different languages, where you might take a book like the Quran, for instance, which is just written by one guy. One guy. The human authors include kings, peasants, philosophers, fishermen, poets, statesmen, a doctor, and scholars. The books of the Bible cover history, sermons, letters, songs, love letters. There are geographical surveys, architectural specifications, travel diaries, population statistics, family trees, inventories, and numerous records. Now, what makes this incredible is although that it's, it's vast in its compilation and, and authors and language and geographical location, there's incredible unity and continuity in the message. And I know it's hard because we just look out of one book. But if I split this up into the 66 different books and I put them on three different continents in the original languages and I lined up all the authors, which I couldn't because they're no longer with us unless they can live forever, but that's not true. There's only one God that's doing that right now. His name's Jesus. <laughs> We're all going to be that way if you believe in Jesus. And I spread that all out. You might be able to understand that the guy who wrote the Old Testament, Moses, who wrote the Pentateuch, the, the first five books of the Bible, and then I put Paul on the other end of the spectrum... And I said, there's incredible unity and continuity and harmony in the message along 40 different authors, three different continents, not countries, continents, three different languages over a span of 1,500 years. Nobody in this room has lived that long. Nobody is in this room. 
That makes this incredible. In many ways, the Old Testament is a series of promises from God, and the New Testament is a series of fulfillment of those promises, or an anticipation, if I can talk correctly, of a fulfillment of the rest. The chapters, if you open up your Bible, you'll see little subtitles and headings, and you'll see numbers, chapters, and verses. Those were added later to help us find sections in the Bible, and around 1,200 to 1,500 A.D., those were added. It's important to understand that the chapters and the verses are not considered inspired and authoritative. They don't carry the same weight because they weren't in the original manuscripts. They weren't in those documents. They are helpful, but we don't look at this verse and say, verse 32, that number 32 is from God. The words written after we believe are, but the number, we don't necessarily agree with that. But unlike any other book, the Bible is written by both God and man. It's important to say it's not co-authored. It's not like God said, hey, guys, let's write a book together. You put some ideas down, I'll put some ideas down, and we'll, we'll collaborate together, right? We'll, we'll co-author. It's not a collaboration. It's not a human writing and saying, God, can you review this and check it over and make sure I got everything right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write something, God, and I just want you to tell me if it's on point, and then maybe we can just say that you inspired it. Like, that's not what happened here. They were not words dictated to humans. God's not like, hey, Paul, take this down, and he wrote it down. But people were led and inspired by the Holy Spirit who spoke and wrote according to their own personalities. And so you see that coming through the different authors. You see personality coming through. And circumstances in such a way that their words are the very word of God. We call this divine inspiration. The writings themselves have the very quality of being God-breathed. If you remember back at the creation record... When God created the first man and first woman, he formed them from the dust of the earth, and then he breathed life into them, and they came alive. It's the same with the scriptures. He breathed into the authors as they wrote, and they became alive. All scripture, not just parts that we like. All scripture, every part. We can't be like Thomas Jefferson, who took a razor in one hand and a Bible in the other, and he cut out pieces he didn't like, and then he glued it back together the way he wanted. All parts. Paul teaches us that every part of scripture is God's word to us. 2 Timothy Verse 3 to 16, he's actually, if I, let's get scholarly, let's get, you know, we're in school today. He's actually referencing the Old Testament when he says this. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Peter said something also. Second Peter chapter 1, he says, verse 19, We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it. As to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the scriptures did not begin with man, they begin with God. And men wrote as they were inspired and led by the Holy Spirit. I hope you're with me so far. And as Paul said, the scripture is there to teach, to rebuke, to correct, and to train. We like the teaching part, but we don't like the other parts, right? Because it's ultimately, the scripture is our ultimate authority. It's the top dog, right, when it comes to authority. It's the bottom line. Because it's written by God through people. It's one thing to say, well, I don't like your opinion, I don't like your ideas, but what does the scripture say? So last week when we were talking about the Trinity, we talked about you can believe what you want to believe about God, but if we're going to believe the God of the Bible, we have to hold to a triune God because that's what this says, and we believe this is our ultimate authority. 
So I can say that I don't like the idea of a triune God. I like the idea of, of just a, a singular, a, a oneness theology, which says that there's only Jesus and those are just expressions. But that's not what this says, and this is the ultimate authority. The Bible is the ultimate authority. Now, there's a hero in the Bible, and if you haven't figured out in our pop culture and our society today, heroes are all the rage because there's hundreds, it seems like, of hero movies everywhere that pop up all the time. The hero of the Bible is Jesus. Jesus, it begins with God in the, in the beginning and it ends with God in the end. And, in the, and throughout the message, we see it's all pointing to, to Christ, towards Jesus. The written word reveals the incarnate word. The written word reveals the incarnate word, Jesus Christ. John chapter 1 says, in the beginning was the word, that's referencing Jesus, and the word was God, and the word was with God, and the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. It's the written word that reveals the ultimate supreme revelation of God, which is Jesus. Without the written word of God, we cannot rightly know Jesus, the incarnate word. Now, some people, and, and I would encourage us if we're newer to faith, some people like to hang out in the New Testament because that's, it's clear that the, those are the central teachings about Jesus and the life of Jesus. But it's, the Old Testament points to Jesus as well. Jesus himself said in John chapter 5, verse 39, to the the Pharisees, he says, you study the scriptures, referring to the Old Testament books of the Bible. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. But these are the very scriptures, the Old Testament books of the Bible, that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me and have life. In Luke chapter 4, so after Jesus um, died and was buried and rose again, he appeared to a couple of disciples and they were on a road walking. And he says this, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them um, what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. See, when scripture is rightly interpreted, it's ultimately about Jesus as God, as the hero. He's the author of faith. He's the perfecter of faith. He's the object of faith. He's the forgiver of sins. He's the giver of eternal life. He's the creator. He is the guy in the end. It's ultimately pointing towards Jesus. To properly interpret, you have to connect the, the verses and the chapters and the stories back to Jesus. So when we look at, for instance, stories like David and Goliath in, in the Old Testament, we like to say things like, you can stand before David and stand, or stand like David before your giants. That's a wrong interpretation. The right interpretation would be like, while you cower in fear against your giant, there is a man named Jesus who's going to stand against your giant for you. You tracking? Boom, did I just blow up somebody's mind right there? Because we are like the ones that cower in the fear, right? We always got to point it back to Jesus. The Old Testament, in a way, then predict, predicts Jesus' coming, points to the Messiah, and in a variety of ways prepares people for his person and work. And the New Testament reflects on his life, particularly in the four Gospels reports on the results of his ministry in the epistles. You with me so far? Good, because we're going to get a little bit more information in a moment. So the Bible is a collection of books, 66 different books by 40 different authors, three languages, three continents, 1,500 years, all inspired by God pointing towards one man, Jesus. That is what we believe about the Bible question is, can we trust it? That's what we believe. Can we trust it? Can I trust that this is reliable? That's nice that you say that, but can I trust this? So I'm going to give you three things that I believe point to the reliability. If, not, if, I, if we haven't already done so, because we see that this is a compilation of books that 
came together with incredible harmony and unity. Three things, and there's more than three, and these are, can be a little bit more elaborate. For the sake of time, I'm just going to give you three. The first is the eternal witness of Scripture. So the New Testament authors and Jesus believed that the Old Testament Scriptures, the Bible of their day, the Hebrew Bible, were sacred Scripture. Jesus often, while he was talking with crowds and disciples and Pharisees, uh, often alluded to the sacredness of the Old Testament. He says in Matthew 22, he says, You are an heir because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. I read in John chapter 5, he says, You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures, sacred texts, that testify about me. I read 2 Timothy 3.16. says, All scripture, this is Paul referring to the Old Testament, all scripture is God-breathed. So they're believing that the Old Testament is inspired by God. 2 Peter chapter 1, I read this as well. No prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. But prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So you, we have to remember, we're not looking at what one book says about itself, but we're looking at a collection of writings, right? We're looking at a collection of ancient documents, specifically the New Testament, and what those New Testament authors, when they wrote their books, when they wrote their letters thought of the Old Testament. You with me? Now, the Old Testament or the New Testament writers also believed that their words and their teachings were inspired by God. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, he says, And we also thank God continually, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as human word, but as, but as it is actually the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. He said in chapter 4, he says, Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you the Holy Spirit. Peter, you know, we know Peter, a disciple of Jesus, early church apostle, considered Paul's writings to be scripture as well. He said this in 2 Peter chapter 3. He says, He, meaning Paul, writes the same way in all of his letters, speaking in them of things and matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand. How many know when you read sometimes the New Testament, Paul's things, you're like, I don't really get that. Well, even Peter's saying, yeah, Paul writes in a way that's hard to understand sometimes. Which ignorant people and unstable people distort as they do other scriptures. He doesn't say as they do the scriptures. He says as they do other scriptures to their own destruction. And of course, Jesus believed his own words that's recorded in the New Testament to be sacred scripture. He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So the internal witness of the scriptures, the internal witness of the scriptures um, point to the fact that we can trust the reliability of the Bible. That's the internal witness. Second thing I want to give you today is biblical prophecies. There are numerous prophecies in the Old Testament that point towards the Messiah. If you remember, again, we're looking at a collection of 39 books in the Old Testament over span of many different authors, span of hundreds and thousands of years, right? There are said to be 300 prophecies about the Messiah in the, in the Old Testament that have been fulfilled in Jesus. Six of the, 60 of them are the most prominent. Now, this is where I'm going to try to slow down because you might need to catch this. The mathematical probability, mathematicians did this. I didn't do this because my brain doesn't function like this. <laughs> the mathematical probability of one guy fulfilling just eight of those prophecies in the Old Testament, of the, of the 60 that are the most prominent, is 10 to the power of 17. Now, for all of us, well, unless you're really good with numbers, that is 100 million billion. It's a one in 100 million billion chance that one guy could fulfill eight of those 
prophecies. Now, Peter Stoner, a mathematician, uh, publicized a, a book that he went through all these things, the probability of the Bible, I think it was, and, and he said the chances of one person fulfilling 48 of those prophecies are 10 in the power of 157. I don't even know how to say that number. That's a lot of zeros. There's a one in an improbable chance of this happening. Unless that one guy that fulfilled all those prophecies is somehow some, something special. And not only is he special, but someone divine guided and orchestrated all those authors to speak of and point to one person. So we can trust the Old Testament and we can trust the New Testament because the prophecies about the Messiah hundreds, sometimes thousands of years before Jesus was born were fulfilled in Jesus. So we have the eternal witness, we have biblical prophecies, and then we have external manuscript evidence. Now, there's a lot of external evidence that we can look to that point towards the reliability of the Bible. We can look at archaeological studies, things that have been found. We can look at matters of science, things that have been discovered later on that the Bible actually pointed to. We can look at all these kinds of things, other external witnesses, but I want to focus on manuscripts because I just, I get a little nerdy about this. So anytime you want to look at history, you want to look at ancient manuscripts because that's where all of our history comes from. You know, all of our textbooks and our, our history books are filled with history from ancient documents, ancient manuscripts. Now, a manuscript is a handwritten copy of an original document. We don't have the original manuscripts of the Bible. We have copies. We have copies of copies of copies of copies of copies of copies of copies. And we have that because what would happen is, is the, the paper that it was originally written on would, would begin to wear over time and it begin to to deteriorate and eventually disintegrate. So scribes would make copies because they didn't want to lose the, the, the message. They didn't want to lose the, 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 the recorded document, right? And so they would make copies. And so anything, anytime you study ancient literature, anytime, not just biblical literature, but any literature in general, when you're looking at ancient manuscripts, you, you, you study for the authenticity of the manuscript. And primarily they look at two things. They look at, first is, is they look at the timeline. What is, what is the date of the manuscript that we have in existence? And how does that compare to when the original document or when the history is being presented? What is the timeline there difference? And the closer the manuscript is to the original document, the more accurate the information, the more reliable the information, right? The second thing that we look at is we look at the number of copies because the more copies that are available, the more you can cross-reference for accuracy. It's like when police are doing the reporting. They want witnesses because one witness isn't good enough. The more witnesses they have, the more reliable the story. You're tracking with me, okay? So let's look at, for instance, Roman history, Greco-Roman history. Most of what is taught about Roman history today, we're almost done, come from two main sources, Tacitus and Caesar's Gallic Wars. Of Caesar's Gallic Wars, we have 10 existing manuscripts dated around 900 AD. And the original date of the original manuscript or the history that is being presented there is around 100 to 44 BC. So there's a gap from the, the manuscript that we have in existence, the 10 manuscripts that we have in existence, and the actual history of about 1,000 years. So what we have is we have a copy of 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 a copy, right? Because the history would disintegrate over time. It, it would wear, the manuscript would wear, and then it would, they would make, scribes would make copies and copies and copies and copies. We have 10 existing manuscripts. 
Surviving copies of Tacitus' work come from two manuscripts, principal manuscripts, dated around 900 A.D. and 1100 A.D. And what I actually like about Tacitus is in, in his work, The Annals, he actually references Jesus and Pontius Pilate in a mass execution of Christians by Emperor Nero. So an, an external historian is, is pointing towards the reliability of the life and death of Jesus. So the Greco-Roman history recorded in the possible um, uh, original date of the original manuscripts for Tacitus around 100 AD. So you have a gap of about 800 years. Are you with me so far? So Caesar's Gallic Wars, we have 10. It's on the screen there for us. Yeah, there we go. 10. Tacitus, we have two. We have a gap of about 1,000 years and 800 years. This is where I hope the treasure chest opens up, okay? Because it does for me. When it comes to the New Testament books, we have over 5,300 copies of Greek manuscripts alone. That doesn't include other languages, and if we include other languages, we get up to around 22, I think, 23,000 copies of manuscripts. The earliest dated verifiable manuscript fragment is said to be written around 130 AD, which is a gap of around 50 to 100 years between the date of the copy of the manuscript and the date of the history. What that tells us is that the New Testament is more reliable than Roman history. The New Testament that we have, that we gather from, the information, that the, these, this, this information is more reliable than the Greco-Roman history that we look at today. Anybody else getting their mind blown up? Because my mind's blown up right now. Now, if we take the, the New Testament manuscripts and we, we cross-compare the 5,300 copies for variants and errors, right? Because there's got to be like telephone tag going on, right? Telephone game where one person says to another person and the message starts out this, but then the message is completely different. I've done this hundreds of times in my lifetime, and if I just put 10 people doing that, it's, it's compared to the, the, these 53 manuscripts. They only account for, the, for variants and errors of 0.5%. That means that the, the 5,300 manuscripts that are, that are in existence of Greek alone are 99.5% accurate. So the variants aren't differences of message and doctrine and idea. It's like spelling mistake, right? It's someone forgot to dot the I or put a little comma in, but those weren't actually in there. Are you with me? So when someone says, well, do you know what? We can't trust the reliability of it because it's just been changed over time. We can actually say no. According to historical criticism... Outside of just belief and, and faith, it's incredibly reliable. It's incredibly reliable. The message, the content has not changed over the last 2,000 years. Now, that's the New Testament. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. What about the Old Testament? And then we're, I'm going to close with this. The earliest dated complete Old Testament manuscript is the Masoretic text. This is what the, the Hebrew Bible is, is, is. That's dated around 900 A.D. And, and for example, the King James Version is translated, the Old Testament is translated from the Masoretic text. Now, if you know your Old Testament history, you can imagine the, the gap between the date of that manuscript that we have in existence, complete manuscript, and, you know, biblical history, Old Testament history, because some of the history extends, you know, a couple thousand years before. So you've got a 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 year gap there right? Significant. Now, something happened in 1947-1956. The Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. And the Dead Sea Scrolls can, can, contain manuscripts of, of the Old Testament, of the Hebrew Bible. Now, scholars were both excited and they started to freak out a little bit. Because what are they going to find in these? And they were dated. Sorry, that's an important part. They were dated, uh, predated the, the Masoretic text by a thousand years. 
So 900 AD, we're looking at 100 BC now, if, you, if you're tracking a little bit. A thousand years difference. It predates, it predates the Masoretic text. So scholars are both excited and concerned because if they, if what they find in these Dead Sea Scrolls show a difference or a different content or a different message or a significant amount of variance, they could, they could state that the Old Testament Masoretic text, the Hebrew Bible, is not a reliable source of information. And then, and then critics, Muslims and, and Mormons who, who often critique and say, well, the message has just been changed over time. The, the manuscript that has been lost, the originals, and, and the, what we have today is what was originally said. They'd be right. But do you know what happened? The Dead Sea Scrolls did the complete opposite. They verified the information. A thousand years of transmission did not change the message or content of the Old Testament. So what does this tell us about the Bible? It tells us that the Bible, the, the, the holy book, this collection of, of books by 40 different authors over 1,500 years, 66 different books, three different continents, three different languages, is a reliable source. But what does this mean for us? This means that the message and the things that are shared in this are incredibly valuable. Because this book claims that Jesus is God. This book claims that Jesus is God. That he came to earth, he's the creator of all things, came to earth, died on the cross for our sins so that we could be saved, forgiven, and have eternal life. So when we look at all this information and we look at it and some of our minds are just like, I don't even know what's going on here. I'm just, I'm done. I'm past this. I've, I've lost it. We look at this, this tells us that this is not something we just leave on a shelf. This is not something that we just let the pastor pick up and tell us on a Sunday morning. But this is life, people. Because if this book, if the books are that reliable, then we can believe the message in the book. And if, if we believe the message in the book, that changes everything. So what does that mean today? It means you need to get in the Bible means you need to read the Bible. It means you need to, to listen to the Bible if you can't read the Bible. It means you need to study the Bible. And it means you, get, you need to get to know the Bible. Because this is the inspired, inerrant word of God. It contains no errors. And it is our divine authority for all things Christian life. It's not just a book. It's a holy book. Would you bow your heads with me? Close your eyes. I want to pray for somebody today. Maybe you're here today and you're like, saw the baptisms, heard the message, and something just hit you in your heart. says, man, if this is all true, then I need that Jesus in my life. Because that Bible, that holy book, claims that he is life, that he's the forgiver of sins, that you have sins that need forgiven. And so maybe you're here today and you're like, do you know what? I need to give my life to Jesus today. There's no one to look around. Something's hit you in your heart. If that's you today, I just want you to raise your hand. You're not being forced. It's just the sign that says, I'm giving my life to Jesus today. Maybe you're here today and something stirred inside of you and you're like, do you know what? I need to rededicate my life. We saw some stories today of people that did so. They've 
they have a story of being brought up in faith and then they wandered and walked away and then something happened and they gave their life back to Jesus. They rededicated, they recommitted. If that's you today, you're like, I want to recommit my life to Jesus today. If nobody looking around, every eye closed, every head bowed. If that's you today, would you just raise your hand? Thank you. Thank you. So Father, we just pray this morning. We thank you for truth. We thank you for your word. God, we thank you that you've revealed yourself through your word. We thank you, Father God, not just for creation and conscience, but Lord, we thank you, God, that you have shown yourself through Jesus, and we can learn about Jesus through this, this book, this Bible, Father, this holy book, and we can trust the reliability of it, God, that you have guided those authors. Over all those years, God, all those contents, all those languages, you've, you've inspired. This is a God-breathed book, Father God. We believe it to be holy. And we believe the message that it contains is life. Jesus, you are God. You came to this earth to die for our sins because we are in sinners need of saving. And because of the cross and because of your death that you paid, you paid our price, that if we put our faith in you and we believe in you, we will be forgiven of our sins and we'll have eternal life. And so for those who've lifted their hands today, they've they recommitted their life to you, I pray in the name of Jesus that, that something in them would come alive. Something in them would come alive in Jesus' name from this point on. And I pray for all of us, Father God, that we would no longer just disregard this book, Father God, but we would put it in priority. But somehow, shape, or form, God, maybe it's in the morning, maybe it's in the evening, maybe it's as we're driving in our car, maybe it's as we gather with friends, we would get somehow get this book, get the words in this book, the message in this book into our hearts, I pray. And I pray that as we look throughout this series and, and throughout the teaching, God, here at Parkway, that it wouldn't just be messages that we decide to share or listen to or hear, God, but it'd be something that is contained in this reliable source of information, this holy book. Because we believe it to be true. Thank you, Jesus, you've revealed yourself. Thank you that you still speak to us today and sometimes we don't hear you audibly, but we can look to the scriptures. We can look to the Bible and see what you're saying to us. And as the author of Hebrews said, it is alive and active in Jesus' name. We love you, God. We bless you. Above all else, be glorified by our lives and our commitment to you in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Thank you so much for listening. We hope that this message brought you closer with Jesus and gave you a better understanding of your walk with him today. If you would like to know more about who we are as a church, you can visit our website, weareparkway.com. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram at parkway.church.